Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Welcome to today's podcast on Nutritank Nourish Your Mind. Apologies beforehand if I'm a little nasally. My hay fever's quite out of control and it's just one of those things when you're in spring but I wouldn't trade the sun in, that is for sure. I love having the sun out. So on to the pod today. It's an extremely exciting one and um, very special to me because I'll be interviewing fellow medical students across different medical schools in the country around their research in nutrition that they've carried out since their time at medical school. So how the podcast will work, it'll be done in two parts as we've got two sets of students talking about their research projects. So let's kick it off with uh, the first cohort of students. I'd like to welcome Julia Kahn. She is a medical student at the University of Bristol, very close to my heart of course, with a public health background and whilst at medical school she's completed a nutrition related project at NIHR Bristol Biomedical Research Centre. Her first project was to continue research on the NICE Quality Standard 94 guidance on childhood obesity which was published in BMJ Open and the authors of that are James et al. She continued a follow-up study on food and drinks for sale in vending machines in two hospitals and looking at the progress made, um, but the need for room for improvement. So we're gonna have a big chat to her about this. Philippa Wright, who's just graduated from Brighton Sussex Medical School and is about to start her journey as a foundation year one doctor, so I should say, Dr. Philippa Wright. Alongside our lovely Elaine McKinnage, who you can catch on the first episode of our podcast, she's a brilliant dietitian, and alongside Dr. Katie Cummings, Philippa conducted research into whether Brighton and Sussex University hospitals are providing a healthy food environment across all hours of the day in hospitals compared to other hospitals. So the study compared vending machines that were branded as healthy or unhealthy and comparisons that were made between the areas in the hospital. So now on to Payal Modi. She's a fourth year medical student at Bristol and integrated in medical education last year at the University of Leeds. During this year, she was able to undertake research critically analysing medical curricula both in the UK and globally. In particular, Payal focused on qualitative interviews with university lecturers and clinical teachers about their perspectives on delivering lifestyle medicine teaching to students. 
So nice to have another Bristol student. We've got Patrick Combe, who is passionate about health and fitness, and it led him to study a master's in nutrition for global health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Following this, he has recently been accepted onto the graduate programme at the University of Newcastle to study medicine this coming September. Well done, Patrick. Whilst at the London School of Tropical Medicine, Patrick conducted research for his master's thesis entitled Nutrition Education in UK Medical Schools, a Qualitative Study of Attitudes, Barriers and Facilitators. He interviewed staff members across UK medical schools in order to gauge their attitudes towards nutrition education and their perspective on recent developments. I'm so thrilled to showcase the brilliant work of Millennium. And last but not least, we have a member of the Nutritank family, Alice Scott, who has been intercalating at the London School of Tropical Hygiene in Global Health and Nutrition, and is currently writing her dissertation on the role of nutrition leads within medical faculty when it comes to undergraduate nutrition education. <laughs> Hi Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. So I've done you a little intro, but for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got first interested in nutrition? Yeah, hi, I'm Julia. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm currently a third year medical student at the University of Bristol and I have a background in physiology and public health. During my first year of medical school, I decided to complete some nutrition-related research at the NIHR Bristol Biomedical Research Centre. Brilliant. And could you briefly summarise the findings from the research and just explain a little bit about why you felt the need to do it in the first place? Um, yeah, um, so I guess I wanted to do research because I already had a background in public health, which was a part of my previous degree, and I had some experience in public health research, and I really wanted to find new opportunities to continue. Um, although I haven't done nutrition-specific research in the past, it's always been an area I have been quite interested in. Um, I've taken a couple nutrition courses in the past and always found it to be a very important subject. Um, and with the help of a really wonderful team at the BRC, we saw many new opportunities for research topic, topics, um, which led me to my first project. Uh, so during my first project, um, I conducted a study looking specifically at quality statement one of NICE quality standard 94, which refers to the healthfulness of food and drinks in vending machines. So this work followed up the publication of a study done by another Bristol medical student actually, showing that food and drink retailers within NHS venues do not actually adhere to NICE quality standard 94. Um, so what I did was then reassess vending machines in the two original hospitals in Southwest England. Um, and these results were compared to the original data collected in July, 2016. And the aim of my study was to assess the same vending machines 19 months later after publication of the original data um, and after informal discussions with relevant individuals in the hospitals to see if there were any improvements. The nutrition profiling model was used at both time points to classify food and drinks as either healthy or less healthy. And we found that although both hospitals had made improvement in food for sale in vending machines, so for instance, some crisps were replaced with low-calorie crisps, there was still no significant improvement in terms of NP scores for all foods between the two time points. Sure. 
That's great. Sounds so worthwhile and really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about the incredible team you described at um, the research centre in Bristol? I know that I know a few people from there, and um, one who I've done a podcast with. I don't know if you ever came across Professor Julian Hamilton Shields. Yeah, so uh, yes, he's on the <laughs> podcast that comes out tomorrow, which will be different for when this comes out but yeah he's fab so tell us a bit about the team yeah so I was with the BRC specifically the nutrition stream so all research um, conducted there was nutrition related and then um, within the stream there's like smaller streams so I was actually with the pediatric stream so I, I did know um, Dr. Julia Hamilton Shield quite well um, and with him was Fiona Bethander. She was basically my supervisor and she is amazing and was an amazing supervisor and sort of guided me through everything. Um, so I was very, very lucky that I had such a wonderful team at the BRC. That's fantastic. And the medical student you mentioned that originally started the research, is that Dr. Alice James? Yes. Yeah, no, I know her because she's, um, yeah, she's a clinical teaching fellow at Southmead. And I remember reading her research as well. Um, yeah, she did it when she was a fifth year. Really cool. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about why it's important to assess hospital vending machines and how you think that it can be improved from your findings. Well, it's very important because it has been shown that the environment in which people live influences their ability to achieve and maintain a healthy weight. Um, and NHS organizations in particular could set a very good example by providing healthy food and drink choices at the venues and specifically vending machines. And furthermore, um, NICE quality um, standard 94, specifically statement one, specifically states that children, young people and their parents and carers using vending machines in local authority and NHS venues can buy healthy food and drink options. So I actually found it quite ironic that um, hospitals adhere to most nice quality standards, but not this one specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of improvement, um, I guess it can always be improved by providing alternative options such as dried fruits, raw nuts, baked crisps and things like that. And importantly, education should be provided to relevant individuals at hospitals to make these changes. Sure. So along uh, similar lines, if you had more time and resources, where would you like to invest it to really progress this project further? Yeah, I guess if I had more time and resources, um, I would want to look at more hospitals in the country because we were quite limited to the two hospitals in the southwest. Um, and possibly trying to introduce more formal interventions to promote healthier food and drink options in hospitals. And while I was sort of working on this project, simultaneously I was also looking at um, quality statements two and three, that's also part of NICE QS94. And this involves not just vending machines, but also cafes and restaurants and hospitals. Um, and we actually did quite a bit of work on this and made like quite good progress but eventually we ran out of time and resources so I guess if I had more time I would have really loved to continue exploring like the other quality statements as well. Yeah because it is really interesting um, just my time being a medical student and being as you know being all over the southwest when you're a Bristol medical student 
you get to see how different hospitals function and their food environment. So, you know, at one hospital, like the BRI, you'll have an M&S there, but then in another hospital, you'll have only fast food e or, you know, chain cafe options. And it is a bit difficult, I guess, if you're, you know, living and breathing in the hospital, you've got a loved one there, and, um, you know, if it's in a rural area, and there just aren't any healthy options. Yeah. So it is very varied and important work. And so um, just to pick your brain a bit, I know you're a university student. What do you think about the food environment um, at university and, you know, um, in the libraries? Are there good, and the, you know, social public places? Are there good options uh, from your experience for healthy food? Um, there are vending machines, of course, but we know that Bristol uh, is quite, a, you know, healthy and foodie city so what do you think um I guess um in my experience it has been quite varied but in general for some reason vending machines just don't have a lot of healthy options Mm -hmm. um if you look at cafes and restaurants around Bristol and around the university there are always um better healthier options or vegan options gluten-free options but in terms of vending machines for some reason they never seem to offer that many healthy choices. Mm. Um, I have seen a couple of vending machines around that do have healthier options, but in general, like compared to just like cafes and yeah. other areas where we buy food, vending machines just like don't offer that many alternatives. Yeah. And it is a challenge because I know that we've got Source Cafe, which is fantastic for during the day, but as you know, a lot of students do late night studying. so. If you're having to like reach for a snack at night to keep you going um, and you know all the staff have already left you are going to have to reach for the vending machine so it is quite limiting there and something maybe that can be looked at to be improved. Yeah exactly definitely. For sure so um, do you have any tips for medical students who are interested in getting involved in this research along their medical studies? Tell us about how you actually got in touch with the research centre in Bristol. Yeah, I would say if you're really interested about research, don't be scared to be more proactive about it. How I got involved was really just emailing. (laughs) Um, I emailed a bunch of people. um, And I mean, the worst that can happen is they either don't respond or they say no. Um, But yeah, reach out to researchers with projects you're interested in. I think a lot of students tend to think that you need a bunch of qualifications or experience to get involved. But from my experience, I think most people are just really happy or even honored to see that you're interested in their work and research. And they're actually very eager to help and guide you. Um, And it's honestly been a really great addition to my medical studies. And I've learned many valuable skills working with the BRC. Amazing. And just to finish off, do you have any self-care tips and um, yummy meals that you like to make that can help educate uh, medical students and healthcare professionals listening to this? Um, I actually really do enjoy cooking myself and I'm always down for new recipes, new food ideas, and especially during this quarantine time now, there's a lot more time to explore um, new recipes and things like that. And yeah, there's a lot of great ideas out there on the internet Pinterest is always a good idea I love that um and yeah just always look for alternatives um there are always like healthier options or 
yeah. and explore and like cook with things that you don't usually cook yeah. with. Yeah, it's exciting being a bit experimental. And do you have one go-to ingredient that you couldn't live without or that just enhances your meals for you? Um, I would say quinoa. Mm. I have that maybe every other day at least. I always make like a nice quinoa bowl. It's nutritious. Like you, you can have it with anything basically. Such um, a good statement. Make it very nutritious yeah. and yeah, and it's filling. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your really interesting research project. And I hope that more students get involved and especially get involved in the other areas that you said you didn't have time to look at. Yeah. And how, can, so people, how can people contact you um, should they want to learn more? Um, I would say email me. Sure. Um, should I? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So it's Julia dot con k-a-n at hotmail.com fab thank you so much we've got the lovely philippa who as i've mentioned is now dr philippa so welcome and massive congratulations thank you very much and thank you for having me <laughs> absolutely so how is it uh, first of all being part of the covid cohort how have you found it i mean it's been pretty up and down but <laughs> it was a bit of a whirlwind finishing med school in this and I'm starting work early, um, but we're going to look at the positives and focus on the positives. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, it's been okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not been the most conventional time. I know my co-founder, Ian, had a very unusual graduation um, on Zoom virtually and had to make his graduation suit um, using a hat, using a flower pot as a hat and his dressing gown yeah. as his gown. It's... <laughs> You guys are, yeah, very inspiring and really shows your resilience and it's, it's a really hard time. So good that you're being positive. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so we'd love to hear about your research. Um, as I mentioned in your intro, we um, had Elaine on the first episode who you worked alongside with this research. So just yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your interests and um, how you got into nutrition and lifestyle medicine in the first place. Okay, so um, I did a degree in nutrition and metabolism at King's College London as an intercalation back in, in between my third and fourth year. And, and I was always kind of interested in it and having Elaine in Brighton as well, who was on the previous podcast, um, who's very proactive and has taught us for, since kind of day one, got me interested in it. And then I went to do my degree and got more interested in it, I guess, and then just in my general life, um, I really like kind of being healthy and trying to get other people to be healthy as well, and I'm very passionate that our teaching on it is quite poor, so I just wanted to get involved in any way I could, really. Yeah, um, yeah. likewise, and I remember we met at um, Dr. Rupi Orger's culinary medicine event. Yes, we did. And then I came along to Elaine and Cathy's um, nutrition in medicine evening at Brighton, which was great. Yeah. Um, so tell us why you decided to contact this research. So as part of our fourth year in university, we have to do a research project and we get a big list of the ones we can choose from. And there was a few nutrition-related ones on there, and I, which I naturally kind of went to, and Elaine is involved in most of them. So... Um, this one just sounded really interesting because it kind of was the other, my other supervisor, um, Dr. Katie Cummings, she is a public health consultant at the 
at Brighton and Hove Council. She was a really interesting person to work with and very passionate and has done a lot of work with the city in regards to reducing sugar content in food and things getting sold in areas of the city. So she was just a really cool person to work with. So this, it just kind of all fell into place, really. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it sounds very, very similar to Julia's research that she just talked about. Um, and, yeah, that's how it kind of came about. That's great. And, yeah, I mean, it's very similar, but, of course, you're looking at different geographical areas. So it would be really interesting to hear about the findings um, that you discovered in Brighton and Hove area. Yeah, so it's a bit different to Julia's in that mine was um, the first kind of research of its kind in these hospitals. So it'd be really good for a student like Julia to kind of carry on my research in a few years' time. That would be really interesting. But um, yeah, so I I kind of wanted to look into what food was available for shift workers and people on night shifts because I thought it was really important for them to have a healthy food option available and that naturally led me to vending machines because there was there was no other option, as we've talked about. Uh, all the cafes, I looked at the opening times of all the cafes, canteens and shops and nothing went past kind of 7, 8 p.m. So it was really reliant on vending machines. And like Julia, I used the um, nutrient profiling model score, which was the score I kind of found to be the best because it, involved, it takes into account kind of calories, um, saturated fat, sugar, fibre, and lots of different things to calculate a number at the end. So it doesn't just look at calories or sugar content. It kind of takes into the whole product. And, yeah, so like Julia, I I analysed kind of every product in every vending machine of two hospitals. And I found um, that the most in the food, so I did kind of food and drink as well. So the food products, the most um, common item was kind of savoury snacks, mostly crisps and then the most common was the second most common was chocolate bars and biscuits and there was no kind of fresh food um or dried fruit or nut options and then drink wise by far the most common drink was carbonated drinks but interestingly all of them are now zero sugar Mm -hmm. because of the sugar tax um so they were all really low in sugar but obviously have very little new nutritional value and there wasn't that much water the water was kind of the fourth the second to last uh, most common drink available and in regards to the scoring system um if you scored above four uh, for a food product it's considered less healthy using the nutrient profiling model and basically the mean score for each each group of food products was above four well above four with chocolate bars and biscuits coming out at like 24 mm-hmm. so basically in simple terms th- there really needs to be a drastic improvement to get the scores lower in like the average vendor machine but what i did find was there was two types of vendor machines in the hospitals i was in there was ones that were obviously trying to be healthier which was great they were branded as a healthier machine and they contained they did contain items with lower NPM scores, but still not below four. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it raises the question whether these snacks even exist mm-hmm. to be below the below the threshold of being a healthy snack, Yeah, which, yeah, is interesting. 
And it's such a complicated one for this time period as well, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic with doctors overworking and being on night shifts and you soon to be uh, doing night shifts and um, looking at, you know, the options for these healthcare professionals. So what would your advice be? What are you going to do going into this environment that isn't going to change overnight? What are you going to do to keep yourself healthy throughout these difficult shifts? Yeah, I, it is really difficult. And I did get that a lot. When I was doing the research, a lot of people were asking me, well, what, what about when you're there at one o'clock in the morning and you need the chocolate bar to keep you going? And I do completely understand that. And I'm sure I will be doing that at times. Yeah, uh, Because sometimes it you need it. <laughs> but... Um, I don't know. I think I'm just going to try and food prep as much as I can. Yeah. I love I love cooking like I'm sure we all do. So I will just try and do that and bring my own lunches and things. But I do find there is quite a lot of snacks around um, at workstations and stuff on wards. Um, so maybe just bringing in some healthier snacks because usually it's not that healthy. So And if it's there, it's quite easy to just pick it up and eat it. Yeah. So maybe just trying to bring in some healthy snacks to share with everybody and um yeah and just try to keep um keep eating healthy kind of at lunchtime and at dinner time when I'm making my own things yeah and that's really nice like you mentioned that you're really um passionate about not only promoting um your own healthy lifestyle but helping others and so I guess you know you're going to be thrown in the deep end but if you are able to like you know, make a big batch of energy balls for yourself and for your co-workers that will not only boost morale, but really help them with like their blood sugar balance and, you know, not getting that dip um, in your energy levels. So it's, yeah. yeah. I, did, I did that um, I on my GP placement I had this year. I took in a big box of energy balls. Everybody loved oh, them. Oh, that's uh, so good so. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> They'll be very lucky to have you. That's so nice. Um, and so similarly, um, as I asked Julia, um, can you tell me if you had the resources and more time, how would you like to progress your research? So again, like Julia, just do it in more hospitals, just get more data to analyse would be really good. And also um, look into more, because we did look into cafes and shops, like Julia said, but it's it's a lot harder to analyze all of their contents because it changes kind of day to day there's things there's cold things you know so just looking into that would be really interesting and also just getting the the access to kind of what's actually being sold because we don't know what's actually being sold from the vending machines there could be all the healthier options may have been bought but it's difficult to say so just getting access to kind of sales data um if i had more time as well that's what I would definitely do and looking into mm -hmm. this we kind of we kind of did this but it didn't go very far in the time period I had but looking at how children's hospitals change um their food environment and if it's seen as more important in a children's hospital as opposed to other areas of a hospital mm -hmm. so that would be a really interesting aspect to it as well yeah and that's really key with rising rates of childhood obesity and um you know, them having complete different energy requirements to adults. So um, it's very, yeah, very good area for future research. And um, so you're really lucky in that you've got a dietitian who sits on your medical fac. Well, you know, sat on your medical faculty. You're now graduated 
um, yeah. at Brighton and Sussex. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience with that and how unique it is to actually have a dietitian who leads on things within the medical school? Yeah, I, I feel very lucky actually to have Elaine so involved in our curriculum. And I guess I wasn't as interested in it in, in first year because I just was a bit oblivious, but there definitely was nutrition teaching and then the, the more years went on and I was more involved in in it all and we do we don't get loads of nutrition teaching but I think we definitely get more than most and just having Elaine so proactive all the time and if you want to learn more she's always there to give you the advice or resources you need to learn more and we have a lot of members of staff that are that are involved as well and yeah I can't speak more positively of it really yeah, no, you are one of the lucky ones, and I'm sure we'll hear more about it from Patrick um, from his research at different medical schools. And so, um, just to finish off, you mentioned you love cooking. So, what do you love to cook? What are your favourite meals and ingredients to cook with? My favourite meals, I love Mexican food. So, like anything like fajitas or tacos, stuff like that. I really like I make very good vegetarian fajitas I do say so myself <laughs> um, but yeah just just trying to incorporate any like as much colour as possible I really like colourful plates of food and I love cooking for other people so and like Julia said just being especially in this time I'm honestly cooking the weirdest stuff because I'm just getting just picking up weird ingredients and just trying yeah. trying new things um, but yeah just just cooking with lots of colour Lovely, very good advice. And so um, to open it up to Julia as well, um, you are both medical students that, and doctor now, uh, who are very interested in this type of thing. How do you deal with perhaps your medical student colleagues who are a bit sceptical on the topic around nutrition and its importance in public health and just general management of the chronic diseases that patients are faced with that you'll see as a medical student. How do you deal with those sceptics? Um, and like you said, you try and get people on board to uh, you know, adapt their lifestyle to be uh, healthier, but how do you do that without preaching? Could you just give some insights? Um, yeah, I have definitely come across this a lot um, with people, but I do find naturally a lot of medics are quite healthy, <laughs> healthy people anyway. Um, but a lot of people kind of don't see the link between so many diseases we see so commonly in healthcare now and a lifestyle. So it's just getting them to be aware of that link. And... <sighs> It's difficult because if it's your peer, then it's difficult. If it comes from like a lecturer or a senior, then they take it more seriously, I guess. So just getting them on board. And like I said, we're very lucky with Elaine mm -hmm. um, to just having kind of more senior people say this is actually... Because I always find quite a lot in early years, the nutritional lifestyle bit was kind of at the last slide of the lecture. Like, oh, yeah, you should mention exercise and smoking and this as well. Whereas it really should be at the start with a lot of things so yeah that I, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, but no, I would say yeah get, get senior it people has to come, yeah from it has to come from those authoritative figures and as we know as medical students like 
um, assessment drives learning. So if it's not a priority within the examination, you're kind of like, let's sack it off. Um, it's the last thing on the slide. It's not a learning objective. It's just there for our own information. Like, why bother? So I agree with you. In so many chronic conditions, um, NICE states that it's the first line management to offer diet and lifestyle. So why is it not at the start of the lecture? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And Julia, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with Philippa. And it sounds like it's been really amazing having Elaine um, as such a huge part of the medical school because I know in Bristol we didn't really have that and we don't get a lot of teaching on nutrition. I think we had maybe one lecture in first year that was cut quite short um, and it really only just touched on the very basics. Um, yeah, so there isn't, without really a heavy emphasis on nutrition in medical school, I don't, I think a lot of medics don't really see the importance of it. And I know a lot of people know that, like, a lot of times you tell patients to, like, have a better diet, but nobody really knows what better diet means. They don't really know how to advise patients specifically on, like, what they need to change in their diet. So, Philippa, um, if medical students or anyone listening to this wants to get in touch with you, find out more about your work, follow your work, where can they find you? Um, so, email is probably best. So, it's um, Philippa, P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A, right, W-R-I-G-H-T, 96, at gmail.com, or um, philippa.right on Instagram. Amazing, thank you why you're interested in nutrition and lifestyle medicine thank you for having me on today Ali um yeah so I'm a fourth year Bristol medical student um and really I, I think I became quite interested in nutrition and lifestyle quite late on in my medical school career compared to many other people's kind of when I started clinical placement in third year um and that's kind of when I started thinking about my own health um what I put into my own body um, and like how I work out um, and things like that and that's what really got me interested in kind of nutrition and lifestyle and whilst being out on clinical placements when I was doing GP work or whether I was on the wards and things like that and I'd seen clinicians give advice to patients on changing their lifestyle habits the majority of what I saw was information that was already out there in the public health about kind of generic advice about doing more exercise eating your five fruit and veg every day um and I was like these are the messages that the public already know about and you just kind of reinforcing them and kind of just telling them the same thing isn't really working and I kept seeing patients who are coming back after they'd been given that advice and they hadn't really changed much of their lifestyle and that was kind of bugging me a little bit about they're being given this advice they're not really doing much about it why is this kind of happening and that's when I wanted to do a little bit more about what we can do as medical students to educate ourselves so that we can help educate our patients in the future and really motivate them to make a change in their lives Absolutely. And so tell us about what you did last year. You did your integration in medical education at Leeds. Um, tell us about your project and some of the findings. Yeah, so last year I integrated between my third and fourth year of medicine in Leeds in medical education. And as part of this, I was allowed to do a dissertation in any area of medical education I wanted. Um, and I chose to 
work on nutrition and lifestyle medicine and how that's integrated within the Leeds Medical School curriculum um, and kind of in which areas and which years it's taught. Um, So as part of that, I did a bit of curriculum mapping as I wasn't too familiar with the curriculum that I kind of asked students and also worked with curriculum developers within the medical school to find out where it's kind of taught Um, and then I looked at lectures and at tutorials um, and the teaching materials which were used at Leeds um, to teach lifestyle and nutrition. Um, From there I found that there was an element of lifestyle and nutrition that was taught in every single year of medical school. However, there was a huge disparity in how much was taught. Um, And I did a bit of kind of literature review um, and I kind of looked at different databases to see what research was already out there, not just at these medical schools, but all UK medical schools about what research had been done about how it's taught and where is the best time to teach it and what year it's the best time to teach it. Um, I found that there was a huge disparity about where nutrition and lifestyle was taught within the Leeds curriculum. Um, and there was a lot of research out there that I found that medical students still felt very comfortable with how much they were taught and studies which were done um, interviewing junior doctors saying that the undergraduate curriculum hadn't prepared them for advising patients on lifestyle measures and they kind of just had the public health um, messages that were already out there um, in that which were um, aiding their practice and they wanted kind of more information and knowledge which they were lacking which the undergraduate curriculum didn't prepare them for so um I decided to interview teachers and lecturers at Leeds Medical School about what was taught, how they were doing their teaching and how students were engaging with the lifestyle and nutrition Um, because there was already quite a lot of research that was done with students already that was already out there, which was really, really interesting. about that research? Yeah, so what I found from interviewing the lecturers and the clinical teaching fellows at the university is that one of the main barriers in teaching students was the fact that they, in early years, they weren't very interested in learning about lifestyle medicine. If they were in a tutorial and the topic of lifestyle would come up, they would brush over it or they would say that they feel they have enough knowledge in this area and would want to learn more about kind of pharmacological treatments in that area. And therefore, because of kind of the way that the the students were telling these teachers, they would focus more on the pharmacological side. And this was a a bigger issue within the earlier years, preclinical tutorials compared to the clinical tutorials where many of the students hadn't spent much time with patients and as younger medical students they wanted to know more about the drugs and which ones to prescribe rather than thinking about lifestyle measures as they didn't view that that was just as important as the pharmacological side of things. So how do you think that we can change that and actually put an emphasis on nutrition and lifestyle from the start of medical school 
Um, do you think it could perhaps be done through the lens of self-care and, you know, caring for yourself so that you can, um, you know, give the best care that you can to patients and the avoidance of burnout? So how do you think we can change that interest? I think probably this information coming from an authoritative figure is a really important point to make. I think in the early years, you're taught by professors in things like biochemistry and physiology, and you don't get as much contact with clinicians who are teaching you. At least that's what I found in the first couple of years at Bristol. And then when you move on to more clinical years, that's when the majority of the teaching is done by clinicians. Um, and if you have that in early years and those messages are reinforced in those earlier years on the importance of lifestyle, that could potentially change the views of younger medical students and those messages would be taken on throughout their medical school career and further into um, their career as a doctor as well. Um, I think the other thing that maybe mm -hmm. that could be done is working with other students who are potentially dietitians and doing a bit of interprofessional learning would be a really valuable um, teaching session with not only learning about what each other's roles are, but also kind of works with the whole team working and the ability to communicate with other healthcare professionals as well, which would be a really important um, and valuable lesson. I think that's something that we, we don't get as Bristol medical students at the moment. I haven't done any interprofessional learning, so perhaps that might be a method to be able to get these messages across um, which will have multiple outcomes. Sure. Um, have you done PEDS yet? Have you done your PEDS? Yes, I have. Yes. I remember, I don't think everyone got it, which was such a shame, but because I was in Bristol at the time at the Children's Hospital, I actually got into professional learning with the Bath Pharmacology students. So we, um, yeah, we sat in with them and uh, had this huge workshop about learning the role of a pharmacist and how you can prescribe uh, for children and stuff like that. But that was, you know, just for one cohort of students. So it just goes to show that these things need to be standardised. And I think it would be so important, like you mentioned, that uh, medical students and dietetic students really have some teaching alongside each other so um, they can learn what each other does so they can help them with their future practice because um, some of the Nutritank team did a few surveys and um, across the country and found that many medical students and junior doctors don't actually know how to refer to a dietitian appropriately so it definitely is something that needs a lot of improvement and you can only improve it if it's ingrained into the training. So um, yeah, really interesting that you bring that up. So tell us why you decided to interview the teachers rather than the students. Like why was that um, perspective, um, yeah, your choice? I think um, I decided to interview the teachers because I think there was already some research out there with students and junior doctors' perspectives on lifestyle med medicine in the undergraduate curriculum. And I think the GMC outcomes for graduates and tomorrow's doctors um, had already, like, state the fact that nutrition and lifestyle medicine needs to be taught, and they're quite specific about what the student needs to 
the knowledge the student the students need to be able to have at the end of graduation and because those two there was already factual evidence and also research done there wasn't anything kind of in between that so the people who actually deliver the curriculum who put those GMC guidelines into practice there was no research done on them and how they teach about lifestyle medicine and I just wanted to bridge that gap really so I thought that was the best place to do it. Yeah and I think that is so crucial because I mean through the Nutritank network you know there's evidence that there is student demand for this type of education it's you know it's extremely obvious now um, we've been banging on about it for the last three years in the public eye locally you name it and so I really believe that your research is so crucial because we need to understand uh, why clinicians and facilitators of curriculum aren't, um, you know, keen or are keen but don't have the resources to deliver such information because, um, as you all know, each medical school curriculum isn't standardised. So it really is down to each medical school faculty to decide how they teach those guidelines in the GMC to their medical students and do they have the expertise uh, you know to deliver some of the um, teaching you know do they have the dietetic and nutritionists on board who can deliver it and it varies so much so how how did you find your conversations went with these um, teachers were there some skeptics were there some who were super on board were there some who were indifferent tell us um, yeah, I think that I had a broad range of views from speaking to those who kind of deliver the curriculum and those who um, are in charge of it. I think many were surprised at the research and the um, the results that I had from interviewing the clinicians and, and the lecturers. Um, there was many who were very supportive of the fact that... Um, lifestyle medicine needs to be more prominent within the curriculum and it hasn't been previously and so it should be given more hours taught within the curriculum more formally um however there was more resistance than there was support for adding lifestyle medicine to the curriculum i think what a lot of the curriculum developers explained was that if we're going to add something to the curriculum and increase the number of hours that is taught within this area, then something else within the curriculum has to give way because there's only a certain amount of hours and teaching time that you can give to medical students. So it was more of a question about if you want us to put this into the curriculum, what are you going to take? What do you want us to take out? Because it has to be one of those, something does have to give way, which was quite disappointing to hear but I love the fact that you know Leeds has a newly found Nutritank Society that's been just running for just over a year now I think which is absolutely fantastic and I think for now that's what's bridging that gap between having it in the curriculum having it formally taught but there's also that avenue for medical students if they do want to know more before it's kind of put into the curriculum in a more formal fashion that there is that society for them sure and yeah I'm you know so grateful that we've got a branch at Leeds but what I really would love to see is it obviously becoming compulsory and um, it is interesting that you found more resistance than support so do you have an answer for um, for those clinicians that say what needs to come out or do you think it's more about integrating it and just having it 
you know, a couple slides that's part of the management pathway within um, chronic disease lectures. So, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, the pharmaceutical approach, the non-conservative approach, why can't it come in there? You're talking about taking a social history, why can't diet and lifestyle come in there? So rather than having it as a standalone, bulky, um, you know, uh, timely module, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think... I think integrating it is the best possible way. I think it as an isolated module would put many people off. Those who aren't mm. don't have much interest in lifestyle medicine would probably not pay much attention to a specific module. However, if it's integrated within, I mean, when you're talking to a patient, it is integrated within all the other questions that you ask them, all the other kind of management that you discuss with them. It is part of that conversation that you have so I think that should be mirrored within the teaching as well. It should also be integrated in in there as well. I think having a couple of slides at the end is what many people in lectures have done and it doesn't really stick. So I think moving away from maybe just having a couple of slides in lectures and having more of a discussion and perhaps talking about these things more in a tutorial session where the emphasis is put on um, lifestyle management and clinicians can actually help students to understand the importance rather than kind of flicking over a slide where many people would just be like I don't need to really know about that that's not important um I know all this information already yeah it's a massive paradigm shift and mindset change that needs to happen because I guess from my experience with speaking to clinicians and facilitators of curricula if they don't deem it as important, then it's really hard to make the students think that it's important, especially as we've heard from Julia and um, Philippa saying how, you know, an authoritative voice is what's needed to um, express the importance of this um, intervention for chronic disease. And so I guess it's really difficult when they've not been taught it themselves and, you know, they've been practicing for years and they've done just fine without it, but really, there's so much evidence now and, you know, with the Lancet paper coming out earlier this year showing that malnutrition is the leading cause of death and, death and disability worldwide and with the NICE guideline, you know, showing first-line management of diet and lifestyle and the NHS long-term plan showing um, the need to emphasise nutrition education for healthcare practitioners, you know, there is all this incredible um evidence and support and so it really needs to just kind of be translated to them and I do believe that it is a crowded curriculum that is a huge issue I know that for a fact but when it comes to actually just integrating something it shouldn't I don't think it should be that time consuming because it's just part of the management plan and we're not trying to make students dietitians we're just asking them to say something more than just the generic eat five vegetables and um, fruits a day so I mean I guess it's a challenge but I definitely think that uh, work needs to be done to help you know the future uh, the, you know the future population who are having these lifestyle related diseases yeah I think you put it there perfectly it's the fact that the doctors and the clinicians who currently teach us if they haven't been taught it they don't put as much emphasis on it and it's just a kind of almost like a vicious cycle that because they're not taught it they're not teaching the younger generation about it it's it really is that 
Yeah, no, absolutely brilliant point there. Um, and so likewise with you, if you had more time and resources, how would you like to progress your dissertation project? Um, I was actually going to carry on the project doing that in Bristol before COVID happened oh, as part wow. of our um, student-selected component, which mm. was meant to take place in July in summer this year, um, but that's been cancelled. So ideally, I, I would have loved to have carried on um, doing more research and looking into the Bristol curriculum in particular, especially now that there's a new case-based learning curriculum that's, you know, about halfway through. So it would have been really interesting to carry on with my research there. But I think for the next step, before I can carry on doing that, perhaps making some e-learning modules that students, um, preclinical and clinical, that can take part in are available, that would be a really good first stepping stone before I can carry on with my research absolutely and um i think it is important that i step in here and explain a little bit about um because i i have quite a good relationship with the bristol faculty and explain some of the changes they're making our nutrition and we're so lucky we don't have an elaine uh, but we have a professor trevor thompson and he is our head of primary care and he is very much responsible for um, all the brilliant education that Bristol medical students get around preventative medicine and um, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And he's very much an advocate for it. And I've actually been having conversations with him recently about the importance of doing a geeky medic style um, video, like an e-learning thing around how to have a consultation um, around lifestyle so um, that is something that will hopefully be in the pipeline and a really good resource to be shared with students and how to better consultation skills around motivational interviewing and what is you know great about Bristol is that there are lots of student selected modules uh, that are available in this area so yes it's not fully compulsory for an entire cohort of students although there is a teaching day around preventative medicine for an entire cohort of students but they offer student selected components like culinary medicine like integrative medicine um, they have uh, I did a module in second year called optimum health and later life which was all about um, kind of whole person care and holistic interventions in the elderly around diet and lifestyle and spirituality and all that kind of thing and so there are these things on offer and um, I know that in the new MB21 curriculum they do have more case-based learning dedicated to discussing nutrition and lifestyle but I agree with you there definitely still needs to be more and it's just about finding those champions within medical school faculties like Trev, like Elaine um, and other champions at other medical schools like UCL has got um, Sophie Park, who's the equivalent of Trevor, who uh, enabled culinary medicine to come into UCL and be taught to the whole cohort of fifth years as part of their primary care placement. So it is just, you know, it's a trickling thing, um, just kind of drip feeding it. But I think it is starting to happen. And it's thanks to research projects like yours and interested medical students that I think we can really make a change. Um, and so on to uh, just finishing off with you and finding a bit more about how you look after yourself. 
Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you like to cook and any self-care measures that you know you've found useful, particularly over this COVID period? Yeah, definitely. I think um, like the rest of you, having this, having more time at home at the moment, I'm I've been exploring with new recipes and trying out new things. Um, and I've also started doing a bit of gardening and growing my own fruit and veg, which has been really, really rewarding, which wow. has been so much fun. Um, so I've been doing that, and that's been really, really nice to get outside into the garden um, and get a bit of sunshine, which has been really great. Um, something new that I've picked up over the last, last few months is yoga. I never used to do yoga, but absolutely love doing that. And that just takes a little bit learning how to, you know, switch off for a little while whilst exercising has been really, really good and so much fun as well. It's my absolute favourite. I don't know where I'd be without yoga, honestly. Um, tell us what you've been growing. I'm so interested to hear. Um, I've just planted some peppers and I've grown some fennel and rhubarb as well, which has been great. Wow. Please send us pics in uh, when they're all ready and we'll definitely post them on our page. Really cool. I will do. <laughs> really cool. And um, if students and listeners want to contact you and find out more about your research, you know, maybe even help you in the future, how can they contact you? That will be absolutely fabulous. Um, you can email me, um, pylemody at gmail.com. Um, I'll send that over as well. Sure. And I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Pyle. Thank you. Patrick, so lovely to have you on the pod and represent the male gender, <laughs> few and far between. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how and why you became an in interested in nutrition? Because, you know, like we see so often, the ratios between men and women, um, if I even just look at the Nutritank branches, there's so many more females um, interested in this space than males. So take it away. Tell us. So I actually did a economics degree initially, which was at Bristol. And during my first year, I, it was kind of random. I, um, I actually first got interested in nutrition when I learned about some of the research using diet to kind of as a management uh, option for chronic disease. So um, one of those was, for example, uh, plant-based diets for diabetes and heart disease was like one of the first things I saw in that arena. Um, and then I just, from that, I started getting a lot more interested in general nutrition and started appreciating a lot more how influential nutrition could be in terms of reducing risk of chronic disease. Um, I, I did A-level biology, so I'd done a little bit of biology, but we didn't really cover that much about diseases and how to prevent them and things, and I'd never really explored that before. So when I started learning about risk factors and um, that sort of thing, I just was really fascinated by it and not just nutrition, you know, um, drugs and exercise and um, all these kind of lifestyle risk factors, which I found most interesting because we obviously have a lot of control over those. So I find them quite empowering. Um, so during my economics degree, kind of on the side, I, I had it as a little casual interest and epidemiology actually became something I was really interested in because in economics, you get quite adept at looking at data and using statistics. And I then became really interested because of that in kind of the statistics of 
health research, so learning about risk ratios and odds ratios and all the things that kind of quantify risk factors. And um, so that basically just developed and to such an extent that it kind of almost overtook the economics and that led to me doing a master's which was at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and that was Nutrition for Global Health. So that was quite a nice course because it mixed nutrition, public health and epidemiology. So it wasn't too focused on just nutrition. And that was kind of, that allowed me to develop those interests that I'd, I'd started developing in a much more formal setting. Brilliant. Wow, I love hearing about people who have a complete different background and then find nutrition and then want to pursue a career in medicine. I think it's incredible. Um, yeah, got lots of different skills there. Um, had no idea. I know we met at that event at Association for Nutrition. I had no idea you were a Bristol student as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> amazing. So, so maybe the good restaurants there or something. <laughs> exactly. I knew that had a big influence on me, the food scene. Right? Um, so tell us, before we get on to your research project, um, which you did at London School of Tropical Medicine last year, um, a big congratulations is in order because uh, you've been accepted to study medicine and it's at Newcastle, right? Yes, it is, yeah. So really exciting journey you're about to go on. So tell us what inspired you to apply for medicine and how you kind of want to incorporate your knowledge from, um, you know, your nutritional studies into your learning to become a doctor? Yes, yeah, so it was kind of at the back of my mind when I started the Masters as an option because I found out about graduate entry medicine, which is a really good thing we have in the UK because it allows people that have already got a degree to, to do medicine, but it's, you, you can do it a year, uh, you, it's only four years, and also you get tuition fee funding, so... And that allows people from different backgrounds to get get into it. So once I found out about that, I kind of had it in the back of my mind because I've become so interested in, in health and uh, the science of health and disease. And I think it was just gradually over the year, I did, I did some work experience at GP practices and they were probably the kind of turning points where I knew that was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, one of those was actually at a practice in East London, the Bromley by Bio Centre which is a kind of pioneering practice for social prescribing. So that was really interesting to see yeah. like, a, um, the potential of what primary care can be almost. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the, the kind of key, when I knew I wanted to do it for sure, it was those work experience, uh, GP placements. And, and, yeah, it's not just nutrition as well. I'm quite interested in things like um, neuropsychopharmacology, particularly things like, psychedelics like what they do in at imperial david nutt people mm. like that always found that really interesting so there's already like special interest areas that i know i'm passionate about so i think there's uh, a lot of reasons to go into medicine for me amazing and so from your studies how do you want to like how are you if you are going to incorporate it into you as a future doctor and the toolkit that you bring to your patients well i've mentioned gp so i think that's really a specialty where you have a lot of potential for using nutrition um, because you see so many patients with kind of raised cholesterol or raised HbA1c and you have a kind of opportunity there to have a good conversation about diet. So if I was to potentially go down that path, that can 
straight away see how having a master's in nutrition would help me tremendously there. Absolutely. And another thing is as well that in uh, in nutrition there can be a tendency for people to go towards quackery in some cases because it seems to be a subject that lends itself to that. So I feel like having a really strong master's kind of training in it helps you protect you a bit against that because you do see some medical professionals um, giving out information that is less than reliable sometimes around nutrition. So I guess that's something I really value because until you've done kind of formal training in nutrition, often you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, very good point. I really value knowing, you know, where my limits are or having that kind of rigorous training. Yeah, you're in a very lucky position and your patients are going to be very lucky to have someone (laughs) who has that skill set. Um, so really, yeah, really cool just kind of entry point into medicine, nutrition first, then medicine, um, yeah. super unique. Um, so before we move on to your project, you did bring up something that wasn't really on for the agenda today, but we can't not talk about it. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm dead set on pursuing a career in psychiatry and I'm also super interested in um, neuro um, psychedelics. I think I've actually sent you, we've had this chat on Instagram a couple of times, but I, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to go, it was a really cool talk, it was at a pub in Bristol um, sometime in December, I was actually on my site placement at the time, and Dr. Ben Sessa, who's a psychiatrist in Bristol, who's working with David Nutt um, on looking at uh, the use of MDMA um, to help facilitate therapy sessions uh with for those with alcoholism and um it was the most incredible talk so unconventional and different and you know he mentioned all of David Nutt's work and he was basically just setting out um you know kind of looking at the controversies around it but also just explaining how useful it's actually going to end up being because you know, it's only using the purest form of MDMA. It's nothing from the, like, you know, the street quality. So the side effects are actually hugely minimal. And the reason why it's so effective is because um, you obviously need that professional psychologist there to help, you know, facilitate the discussion around alcoholism and if there was any trauma. But the MDMA actually allows them to feel comfortable to actually release all that emotion in a safe way. Um, which I found really interesting because it helps like elevate their mood whilst they talk about distressing things, um, you know, in the with the comfort and safety of having a trained professional. So um, yeah, he's doing trials at with this at the BRI in Bristol, and it was fascinating to hear about. So yeah, keen to hear about um, what you're interested in the area. Yeah, well, I'm gl- I'm really glad to hear there's about other students engaged in that because I think it, just like in nutrition, it's it's such a exciting area that's very untapped potential, you know, because of the status of these substances like MDMA being illegal, the, the research has been severely restricted. If you listen to David Nutt, when he talks about the amount of bureaucracy he has to go through to, to study these kind of things. So there's huge potential there. So um, it's something I'm just obviously start, about to start medical school. So uh, again, you don't know what you don't know. So it's something I want to, just take the time out consistently to read more about uh, essentially uh, with stud- other students in the university, maybe start a, a society or some or organize some lectures around that because I know there's there's some societies like at Barts, uh, the Drug Science Society, 
stuff like that. So if I can have any time uh, on this very intense first year of graduate medicine, then I'll, I'll be trying to do as much nutrition and trying to look at that stuff as well. So hopefully I'll have some time. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if you need any tips, my co-founder Ian Broadley did graduate medicine in four years. So it is hectic, but doable um, as he yeah. has shown. So on to the main topic, I would love for you to tell our listeners about your research uh, that you did during your master's and why you decided to look at this particular topic. So just introduce us to the project and your inspiration behind it. Sure. So the project actually started because um, the Association for Nutrition, uh, they have been tasked with developing a nutrition curriculum for UK men medical schools. Now there already was a nutrition curriculum which was background for the study. So uh, it came from the Association for Nutrition's project to develop an updated nutrition curriculum for medical schools. So this would be voluntary and there was a previous curriculum that was also voluntary um, that was created some years ago. Uh, but there was quite a lot of indication that medical schools weren't particularly following it too well or weren't actually aware of it in some cases. So that was being developed. And the court director, Marco, who uh, for my MSc, he was on this committee that was involved in developing the curriculum. And basically, they what would have been quite useful for the people developing it is to get some feedback from staff members at medical schools who are involved in curriculum setting or involved in nutrition in some way. So basically this is how the project was born. So I, my task for the association for nutrition was to take this curriculum to different staff members and get feedback on it. However, that wasn't going to be the main project. So I also needed to do like a research project and that was, a kind of inroad in to, to access to these people. And me and Marco together came up with the um, kind of research objectives that I would do. And he told me actually about the work of NutriTank. And um, I learned about you guys and I learned how you guys were pushing for additional nutrition content in the curriculum. And what, one of the things I was really questioning or I found um, an interesting question that could be potentially answered here was, how much support is there for this uh, aim to increase nutrition? Uh, you know, what is what is the views of the people that are calling the shots? Do they actually want this or what's their attitude? So that was one thing I wanted to kind of find out. And then what ended up really happening was I didn't actually manage to recruit many people that were really top-level people. So I, I recruited three deans of medical education, but apart from that, the rest were kind of people that were more involved in teaching nutrition or implementing nutrition. So what I actually did was um, expand the objectives of the study to include barriers and facilitators because mm. these other people that I, I was going to be interviewing, they would be really well placed to talk about potential barriers to implementing nutrition and what's been helpful in facilitating it as well. So they were the kind of three aims, the, the attitudes, barriers and facilitators. Um, and yeah, some really interesting results came out of it. You can't really make broad brush conclusions because it was a sample size of 10, but 
the the quotes that came out of it, some of them were very interesting, I thought. So um, I'd love to kind of discuss a few of those with you now, if that's all right. Yeah, I'd love that. And just to say to our listeners, if you want more detail, Patrick's also done a fantastic blog for our website, which I'll put in the show, case, a show notes. So go on, Patrick. Yeah, actually, uh, it, the research hasn't been published in a journal, but it, the thesis is available on my website and um, definitely the results, if you skip to the results section and read some of the quotes, they are some of them are really interesting, I'm sure, for people that are listening to this podcast. But some of the main uh, things I found, so barriers, time, time came up again and again in terms of limited time. So, for example, um, participant three says, I think the problem all medical schools have is there are many special interest groups out there all of whom have a valid argument for saying whatever they're pushing is very important. Um, but it's about getting a balance right because there's only so much time we have to teach the students. We already have a very packed curriculum. So that was one of the deans and that was kind of echoed in other comments. Um, and again, I think PR mentioned this kind of, if something comes in, something else must go out as a barrier and that was definitely that definitely came up in my research as well so um someone said one of the things i basically look for in any proposal is if someone says something ought to go in i'm very interested in what they think should come out yeah so that's an example of that um however there wasn't like i didn't get an, uh, a kind of impression from the senior people that there was a negative attitude towards nutrition mm. uh, something i was perhaps maybe expecting slightly um, it was this lack of time just seemed to be the main driver for um, the resistance because they were quite resistant to putting more nutrition in the core curriculum. So that was one barrier time. Another one that I did expect was related to staffing. Mm. So there was a paper published in 2019 in Advances in Nutrition and it uh, entitled Solving the Catch-22 and it kind of... Re- uh, refer to this catch-22 situation of where medical students may not be able to be taught nutrition that well because the people that are teaching them themselves weren't taught nutrition that well in medical school. Yeah, and that, that vicious cycle, exactly what Pyro yeah. termed as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah, so I thought I'd definitely bring that up because, yeah, that came up several times. And um, Another thing was, yeah, so basically staff, are there enough dietitians who are kind of experts in nutrition to to teach students or another participant who's actually involved in um, implementing nutrition nationwide, he uh, or they thought that some some kind of clinical lecturers may think they know more than they actually do know or they may be teaching things that aren't necessarily in line with the evidence base. Mm -hmm. That could be an issue as well. Um, so yeah, that was there were the kind of two main barriers. There are other ones that you could look at the research to see, um, but I can discuss a few facilitators as well. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us. So one of the facilitators that seemed to help a lot, which kind of is logical, was that having a nutrition lead would help. Mm-hmm. Um, and one one participant who was a kind of nutrition lead. Um, they said that in the last few years, they'd increased nutrition from being present in one module to eight modules, um, just following being asked to review the nutrition in the curriculum. And they said that despite the crowding in the curriculum, 
they said that one strategy they could use is kind of shoehorning it in where they could. So emailing people, for example, saying, I noticed you're teaching on cardiovascular disease. Would you like us to come and expand on where you talk about lifestyle factors involved? So kind of helping people um, develop more lecture slides or, um, you know, where they can fit it in, just trying to fit it in. But kind of what I took away from that, from the research related to um, the crowded curriculum was that perhaps we need to do, we need to focus on the external stuff for the moment. Um, the stuff like you guys are doing or culinary medicine, um, because of course we, we don't need, there's no like time restriction there. And those people that are engaged, at least they can uh, access that if it is there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's really vital. Like there is something like NutriTank coordinating that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah, it is, it is a bit of a minefield with, you know, you mentioned these barriers and you, they're completely, um, yeah, they're completely fair enough. Um, but I guess, like you said, when it comes to the facilitators and that quote you just read out about a nutrition lead asking, you know, the cardiologist to tack on some diet and lifestyle stuff, I think that is unbelievably doable. And I think NutriTank can really help medical school faculties because we're already putting in a lot of the work because within our branches, we've got these students inviting experts and really keen dietitians in. We've got a fantastic relationship with the British Dietetic Association, the BDA, who are really keen to help pair dietitians to each um, NutriTank geographically so that there are some in each location. So I do think it's possible and I think that they so want to teach medical students because they want to improve the care that their patient gets and they also want to improve the relationship between them and clinicians in terms of how you know um, doctors uh, refer on to dietitians. So I do think there's a lot of will and the external things that are out of hours like NutriTank and Curry Medicine, yeah, absolutely. But we just really want to carry on convincing them that it can work within mainstream curriculum and it's challenging as you've pointed out yeah that's well that's really promising that you've got that relationship with BDA because if there's that will from the dietitian side that is really helpful um but yeah just to carry on with some of the results as well so one thing that would be of interest to you guys is that repeatedly this came up um one there was a bit of criticism of or kind of cynicism about some of the research related kind of highlighting these issues so a lot of participants um said that hours counting the number of hours that nutrition uh, that medical students are taught may not be very useful and it may kind of be it may miss out a lot of implicit teaching mm-hmm. um, also they said that um students may not be identifying nutrition where it's taught so i'll give you one quote it says I think we're doing a lot of what's in here referring to the curriculum, but we're not saying to them, quote, this is nutrition, end quote. So they learn about it, but they don't know they're learning about it. And that was a, a couple of participants did mm-hmm. raise that. So um, that's in that be interesting to hear what you think about that. And um, because for me personally, I haven't been through medical school, so I don't, I'm sure I have a lot more of an idea when I've finished what my view on it is because. I'll have a first-hand view of uh, is this adequate or is this not? 
So, yeah, what do you, yeah. What do you think about well, I'm not going to say what I think about it. I'm going to get our other lovely participants to unmute themselves and try and hear their perspectives on it. Um, so, who wants to go first? Who wants to maybe mention their views? I think what I will mention uh, just before is that, and I'm sure Philippa can chip in with this, is that Elaine and Dr. Kathy Martin um, founded an organisation who we're in a formal coalition with alongside NEDPRO and culinary medicine called ERIM, looking at educational research in medical nutrition. And what they do is they code Brighton and Sussex curriculum with the ERIM logo for when medical students are actually being taught nutrition. So I think that's important, you know, to actually um, improve this issue around the kind of vagueness there but yeah let's hear let's hear from our participants um hi philippa here um i that is really interesting and i feel like i'm always a bit tuned into it because i'm interested in it so i'm always i always clock when say a doctor or a lecturer or whoever it is mentions nutrition specifically because it doesn't happen that often and i'm kind of i guess more tuned into it but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad thing if it is just included in things and not it's not specifically being like oh this is this is nutrition you need to learn this because it's it's not as concrete as some other kind of topics you're taught it's not kind of as textbook as say anatomy or learning a learning yeah learning an anatomy diagram say so I think it is really important to incorporate incorporate it into all the different things we learn and not necessarily have like an hour of nutrition because I remember when Paul Lane had to do a, a lecture for us and it was like 20 minutes uh, back in third or fourth year and there was just too much to even attempt to talk about in that such, such little time. So I think, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if you're not kind of aware that you're learning it all the time as long as it's in there somewhere. I think that's really interesting and I I think then I agree on some level but I think from the evaluation perspective of finding out how much nutrition is actually taught in medical schools curriculum facilitators need to have a method of knowing how many hours approximately is given to nutrition but I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't necessarily need to be outright labeled to the students and translated in that way but I think there needs to be a system internally um, that happens you know that happens to um assess the amount of hours yes yeah I, I i agree with you there and it's just kind of reflecting because obviously i'm at the end of med school now i've been through five years of it obviously first year and second year you do a lot more sciencey lectures and it's a lot less clinical so maybe i'm kind of out of that mindset that because i've just had i've just been taught but in placements and by clinicians for so many years now and everything's a bit mashed into one like everything yeah. overlaps yeah because no medical speciality is in its own it's just completely separate everything overlaps so i guess it's i would say it's more important in the early years to know exactly where it is in the lectures because they're very much programmed and they're very much structured so i would feel like that would make more sense in early years of medical school yeah i think i that's think i agree Mm -hmm. Go on. Yeah, no, I think I agree with Philippa. I think when I'm on placement or whether I'm in a lecturer and lifestyle medicine or nutrition pops up, I'm more engaged with it and I'm like, oh, this has come up. This is really interesting that someone's actually discussing it and talking about it. But I love the fact that 
Brighton are kind of putting their logo in there where it's taught. I think that to a student emphasizes that, oh, this logo is popping up everywhere. Um, it's coming up so much. This must be something that's important if they're recognizing it from the faculty side of things and it's popping up so much within these lectures. It must be important I should look into this more and probably in the back of their mind subconsciously they'd pay more attention to it perhaps. Mm -hmm. Interesting, it's like a nudging psychology thing there. Um, because I mean, exactly. yeah, you need to work a system whereby we know that we want the authoritative figures to tell us something's important, but we're also, you know, those young kind of millennial students that we don't want it to just be, you know, preached at us. Um, so like you said, Payal, it's quite, I guess, implicit if it's just kind of, you know, by osmosis, they're seeing it on the curriculum and, oh, this is important, rather than constantly being told, um, this is important, you need to learn this. We don't want that because, you know, you could rebel against the information. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, interesting. And um, any other thoughts from anyone? Yeah, so uh, just talking about the clinical, the separation between the clinical years and um, the earlier years. So that, that actually came up as a potential barrier as well, which was on clinical placements, it might be hard to deliver some nutrition learning outcomes in a consistent manner. Mm. It's a bit more disparate that the teaching people are getting. So, and um, I think someone said something like, uh, it's all very well, you can teach them all the nutrition you want in a lecture, but if they don't see that being replicated in their work, in their placements, they don't see people talking to patients about nutrition or, or implementing that in practice, then it, that's a bit of a block there. Yeah. Uh, you see what I mean? So. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I was going to say, um, especially with, like a new, a new curriculum in Bristol, at least, like things are being taught differently in medical school. So I know in first and second year, preclinical years, we have lectures, but we also have quite a lot of small group sessions. And that might be like an interesting area to see if we can incorporate more nutrition type teachings because um, we have um, effective consulting sessions where they are smaller group sessions and you do do like mock consultations with actors things like that and we uh, tend to focus on different areas and different weeks that's not very they're not um very not necessarily um like sciencey type things and we do delve into sort of lifestyle medicine a bit more and I feel like that might be a good area to maybe um, look into a bit more might be a good place I, def to I definitely more. think you've pointed out a really good area and like I mentioned before I got the interprofessional pharmacology students teaching because I was in Bristol and you know the link bath to Bristol very easy but those who are in Swindon obviously didn't get that on their peds placement so the non-standardised thing is an issue and I don't know if it will ever really be combated because that's just how some medical schools run with, you know, such big gear groups and having to put students on placements all over. But what I do think is important and Payal kind of brought this up is e-learning. I think to be fair to a standardised e-learning course... Um, like around lifestyle conversations that then you could you know have small group face-to-face -face sessions after you've watched the e-learning I think could be unbelievably effective and then 
you will just have that as a foundation to then practice when you're on your individual placements, having had it as like a whole cohort. Um, so I think that could be really good supplemental learning that is compulsory, essentially, because you can't just say, oh, there's e-learning for those who are interested because no one will do it. And I think that kind of comes back to the fact that you really need to get um, the GMC guidelines and tomorrow's doctor's outcomes to have this um, competency, uh, you know, listed because... Nutrition and hydration is so important in clinical care. And uh, recently, um, the MUST, uh, the malnutrition scoring system, was taken out of um, the GMC Tomorrow's Doctor's Outcomes um, really recently. And it, it was such a shame to see that because that was the one kind of permanent compulsory thing that tied nutrition into um, a graduating doctor's skill set. And so I do think we need to have competencies in Bristol's we've got we've got something called your CAPS uh, logbook which is what you it's like a guidebook that you take like a bible you hold it wherever you go on every clinical placement and all the skills um get signed off there if you do blood pressure if you take blood blah 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 and we need to get like take a diet and lifestyle history in there so that it's something that you know all medical students <laughs> want to do sometimes is jump through those hooks hook, hoops and get things ticked off and that's fair enough like if it's not if it's not someone's main interest that's fine like I'm not very interested in surgery I still need to learn about it to help my future patients and stuff but it just needs to be compulsory so that people can have a baseline knowledge around it and those that are super interested of course can, can pursue those student sector modules that we talk about etc etc but it just does need to be a core skill yeah um, so back to Patrick's research, um, if you had, like I asked all the others, if you had more time and resources, how would you progress this very important piece? Well, uh, before I answer that, I'd like to ask people actually, because the main barrier that came up was the time thing and the crowding thing. I was just wondering what your, you guys thought about, is that, is that a reasonable um, objection? Like, do you think... From your point of view, guys, is there any space for nutrition? Is there, are there things that you, I don't know, say biochemical, very niche things like Krebs cycle or something like that? Do you, is there anything you think that um, could be left out or could make way for nutrition? Is or does it come across to you like this is a very valid point and pretty much everything you've learned is really important and there's no room because uh, I don't because from my perspective, I have no idea. I think um, at Bristol especially, I think with the curriculum changes that have happened with moving more to case-based learning and integrating the preclinical years and clinical years, I think from what I've heard and what my involvement's been with the new curriculum is that they have started to take out areas of bi biochemistry which they don't deem are as important for the next generation of doctors. But I think... I, I personally feel where I'm at that stage that until I start working as once I'm qualified, I don't feel like I could completely say that this is completely irrelevant um, and have that opinion about what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught. Obviously, I have my own opinions on what, mm. I, what I deem is important, but until I actually work as a, prof as a professional, as a doctor... Um, I don't think I'm informed enough to be making those decisions. Yeah. 
likewise, I wouldn't, I know what I prefer and what I don't in medicine just based on my own personal interests and things that I've felt quite sleepy in when I'm in a lecture and things that I'm alert um, and interested in, but that's just, you know, individual preference. Um, and, you know, it's complicated because you need to produce a cohort of medical students that where 50% are going to become GPs, some are going to become researchers in clinical epidemiology in the public health space, some are going to become surgeons, and so you do really need to have widespread disciplines throughout the degree, even though when I'm learning like clinical epidemiology and it's just so dry and you know and it's just lecture after lecture after lecture I know how important it is because I completely support the evidence-based module um model of medicine so of course I know I need to learn about that um even though that's you know that's research-based so it's very hard to answer what can come out which is why I just think that it can just be integrated um as part of the management pathway rather than I don't think it should be standalone. Yeah, I think that sounds very sensible. But, and uh, yeah, it's interesting you said that because um, another point that one of the deans made was that this kind of call for more nutrition, why is it automatically looking at undergraduate? He's saying, you know, why aren't you going to, for example, the GP, Royal College of GP people and saying you need more nutrition in your syllabus or something or and I think that that was quite interesting when I heard him say that because mm-hmm. um I was thinking yeah well maybe on some areas of medicine you almost don't need to know anything about nutrition say you're a surgeon I don't know I mean because I'm not a doctor I'm not really I don't really know too well but it, I, you can easily see how as a GP you need to know more than a surgeon um so yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I genuinely think nutrition is everyone's responsibility. And it's funny you mentioned surgery because it actually is super important that um, surgeons are aware of nutrition because, and, you know, with working alongside anaesthetists as well, um, because within the current crisis of, you know, um, obesity in the UK, it's much harder for anaesthetics to um, anaesthetise overweight and obese patients and it makes the surgery much more complex like I was watching uh, the Channel 4 documentary um, that Professor Julian Hampton Shields from Bristol uh, led on childhood obesity the other week and it showed that when these orthopaedic surgeons had to help um, a teenage boy who was very obese with um, he had a I think it was Perthes disease or something, um, something wrong with his hip, some sort of displacement. And it was so hard for them to cut through to get to the bone and it became more complicated, the surgery as a result. And that comes from, you know, they would need to discuss nutrition and likewise with vascular surgery um, and everything like that, you know, peripheral vein health, stop smoking, um, improve your diet, improve your cholesterol. So it really is everyone's responsibility and different specialties will definitely need to know more, e.g. you know, gastroenterology, but even in psychiatry, the connection between food and mood is so important. So it really is um, everyone's responsibility. And I think, yes, postgraduate training needs to be vastly improved. And, you know, the organisation NEDPRO, who you know so well, are working on that. Um, and that does really need to help, but you wouldn't need as much 
postgraduate training, which is harder to facilitate if it was done in undergraduate. And we're just asking for a baseline and people can go off and do um, further training should they wish to. But at the end of the day, when you're an F1 or an F2, you it definitely will come in handy, um, especially yeah in primary care, as you mentioned. Yeah. Can I, can I just make a point um, on kind of the first thing we we're talking about with um, finding the time and where to do it? And because um, I feel like a lot of people, when you say, oh, we want to do like bringing nutrition, they think because after having done a degree in nutrition, there's such a difference to what a medical student and foundation doctor needs to know than what you learn on a degree in nutrition, because that's way above the level of what any competent doctor needs to know unless you're specializing in certain things and I think some people think you're going to bombard them with all this extra information about nutrition and different different I don't know like things in food and components and all these vitamins and minerals and all the detail that you don't need to know to be a good doctor so I think just making them aware that it's like baseline level but I think yeah. then like we touched on before just not saying oh, you need to eat more fruit and veg. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, that's why we advocate for the practical application of nutrition, which is what culinary medicine is. You learn about the theory and, you know, all the different diets that exist that completely confuse the general public, keto, gluten-free, blah, 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 and the evidence behind it. But at the end of the day, it's how you um, translate that verbally to the patient that's going to help them. And... Um, you know, it can be 10 minutes in a consultation, it can be five, you can book in for another one. So I agree with you completely. Um, it's very much not about learning the nitty gritty minutiae detail around food. Yeah. Cool. So back to the question about if you had more resources and time, what would you do with it to progress your project? Patrick? Yeah, so mine was very much an exploratory work. It wasn't trying to draw any broad conclusions um so kind of the barriers and facilitators that i identified could perhaps do another study where i try and quantify those in a bit more of a, a reliable way so a bit more of a larger survey but using the kind of results that i found to inform the questions perhaps um but i think another thing that i would like to see probably wouldn't be anything to do with me but um, when I was doing the background research for the project, while there was quite a lot of small studies that have been done on this topic about um, trying to identify or identifying or seem, that seem to identify shortcomings in doctor knowledge on nutrition or at least on their confidence, um, I don't know if there's anything really large or like a really big study with a big sample size, um, for example took a sample of GPs, like a decently large sample, and sort of found out exactly what's going on, how how much are people talking about diet, or Mm. or trying to identify, is there any, um, are there any myths or any things that aren't really in line with the evidence base that that GPs or another specialty, you could take a sample of that they believe, because you do see examples of people in the media you adopt the same things as I've mentioned before that are less than evidence-based. So I'd love to see kind of more of an identification, like a really reliable identification of how much of a problem this is in the clinical um, practice. Mm. And I think having, if, if that did throw up some real big issues, if there was 
a really low number of GPs consistently talking to say obese patients about diet or, um, or, you know, using as it should be in one of the first line management, um, strategies in certain non-communicable diseases, seeing what's the percentage of GPs are actually using that as a first line, something like that, because I think a clearer idea of the shortcomings would help strengthen the case a lot for medical schools to implement more and especially in the way that you've mentioned like in a practical way that people can use yeah completely no that's that's fascinating area and yeah thank you for bringing that up um and just to mention one more thing so um it would have been great if this had come out uh when you were writing your dissertation but oh well it's still important so um you may have seen that um, myself, my co-founder in Elaine, Kathy, um, doc, uh, Professor Simantra Ray, and many others have just worked on this paper called Time for Nutrition Education, which has been published in BMJ Prevention, Nutrition and Health. And uh, it was an amazing research project to have worked on. And it basically, uh, evalu- Ian and I um, and the rest of our team collected surveys on um, attitudes towards nutrition um, from medical students and junior doctors and most of them on an apps yeah on a whole came back to say that it wasn't due to a lack of time that they didn't bring up nutrition within the consultation it was due to a lack of confidence and of course confidence only comes from education and practice 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 and training so um, it was a really great paper to have worked on and you can all, uh, I'll send you the link, you can all have a read of it and we've made a really cool infographic. Um, and so I think that will be a really good foundation study to kind of incentivise people um, who are stakeholders in the medical faculty to really open their eyes about it. Um, so um, to finish up, Patrick, uh, I want to hear about how... You know, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. How can we get more guys involved in nutrition? Um, uh, what What do you think we can do, especially as Nutritank as an organisation and our events um, around the country? How can we get more guys involved? And um, tell me about how you look after yourself and any of the yummy meals you make. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because I, I, don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, but it's an interesting one because I think a lot of guys... Where I see guys watching their nutrition tends to be the guys that go to the gym and like to get big muscles, but that unfortunately doesn't always lead lead to necessarily the healthiest way of eating. Um, So I think potentially you could try and look at those guys first and give them a bit more evidence-based advice on how to do that in a more healthy way, essentially, some people. But I I don't really know. It's something that I've not really thought about too much. yeah. I didn't really know actually what it was like until I did my masters because you know I turned up on the first day and there was like five guys and thirty five girls so <laughs> until that point I didn't really know mm. there was a massive divide because uh, obviously it all affects us the same well, not exactly. not the same but you know it's just as important really for boys and girls to eat healthily exactly um, i don't know to be honest it's it's a a weird one really i guess we need to clone you (laughs) yeah although it's it's um you know it's interesting because it's not that women are necessarily healthier because i think as david nutt has says in his new book which i highly recommend 
um, that women are about to overtake men on alcohol consumption, I think. So, oh, my goodness. Uh, always the case that they're uh, healthier on the lifestyle. So I think there may be shortcomings in, in both genders or uh, sexes. So. And, but, um, yeah, I don't know the answer, to be honest. That's <laughs> all right. And speaking of alcohol, I've seen that you like your low-alcohol beer, and yeah. um, that's really good to hear. And so tell us about other ways you look after yourself. Um, so I guess just obviously at the moment with coronavirus, I like to I like to keep myself informed of all the latest goings on and all the fortunately some of the kind of scandalous goings on at the moment with regards to PPE and things. But I, I guess I've been looking after myself by just having like an allocated time of the day where to look at the news and look at articles and Twitter and not not spending too much time dwelling on it, kind of getting annoyed at it for a mm. certain time. And then getting on with the rest of my stuff the rest of the time. Um, my life at the moment is pretty much anatomy, physiology, and delivery. So um, that's not, a good way to keep fit. So you're cycling. Not eating, delivery, actually cycling. Delivering. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I'm really lucky actually because I have graduate entry medicine to look forward to, and because I'm coming from a economics background and nutrition background there's i know very little on physiology so um i've got so much i can be doing now to kind of help myself prepare so i'm just getting on with that basically what a good student love to hear it and yeah you've got loads of people who can always help you out along the way and give you tips so um best of luck and yeah, yeah. hope you have freshers week when it's meant to start we don't know with covid yeah, I doubt there'll be any clubbing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, seri it's serious oh, time now in your third degree. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, thanks so much for coming on. So, Patrick, where can people find out more about you and follow your work? Yeah, so my website is www.patricknutrition.com. I haven't got much on there, but I do have... One of the main re reasons I set it up was to put this research on there, people that wanted to read it, so... Uh, if that interests you, you can check it out there. And then I've got Instagram, it's Pat's Public Health. Cool. And you can definitely put this podcast up on your new website when it's out. Yes, absolutely, yeah. All right. We have someone in the Nutritank family. Let me introduce or get her to introduce herself, Alice Scott, a Birmingham medical student. So, hey, Alice. Hey, you're right. Not too bad. So just start off by telling our audience a little bit about you and what stage you are in training and what you've been doing this whole year. Okay. Um, so I'm a Birmingham medical student and I've completed my fourth year. Um, but this year I've been integrating at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, studying nut the Nutrition for Global Health Masters. Um, and that's kind of what's brought me um, as part of like my research project um, at the end of the year. We had to complete a summer project um, and I have gone on to do mine within the medical education. Brilliant. So we'll dive into that. So tell us what actually inspired you to carry out this research around nutrition education in um, medical training. Um, so I think because my education was purely sort of more global health focused and on my course, like there was only two medical students and there was a whole cohort of 
um, just a wide variety of people. I knew that I wanted to sort of, for my summer project, because I was coming back to med school, bring it back to medicine. Because um, this year has been great, it's been so different. I haven't thought about medicine once, but I knew that it would be good over the summer to transition back. And I thought as I sort of been involved at NutriTrank at my Birmingham branch, I kind of like to do something. I'm interested in nutrition and medical education. That's why I decided to indicate in it. Um, so I thought I'd wanted to do a project within that area. I was sort of having a little look at um, research and literature, and I came across a uh, study by Long and Neild, which was looking at current nutrition training provided by UK medical schools. And I found that the nutrition lead was identified as supportive of increased nutrition um, within a curriculum and greater mean time sort of allocates like more structured teaching and at the same time because my course is accredited by AFN we had Dr Dennis Jones come in for a lunchtime lecture just to talk about um, the accreditation and registration of nutritionists and my course director mentioned about AFN taking over um, the role sort of looking at nutrition within the medical curriculum mm-hmm. so he said it would be good to chat to just with who's within that area and I was sort of speaking to her mentioning a few ideas of things I might want to explore for my project and I talked about nutrition leads and she said she thought that'd be a really sort of interesting avenue to explore um, especially with the release of like the AFN curriculum kind of in progress of the new nutrition undergraduate medical curriculum absolutely and yes I know Glenis myself too um and my co-founder Ian and I have been working in that interprofessional working group with the brilliant work that the AFN are doing with updating the um nutrition aspect of the medical curriculum so yeah really brilliant to hear you know how you got set off on your journey so tell us a bit about I know you're writing up now but tell us a bit about what your plans are and what you've found so far um so I think I think what I found is sort of so my main aim was to sort of explore the role of the nutrition lead within the UK medical education, looking at sort of the six what they view as perceived their successes and limitations of their work and any support that would be of use to them in terms of going forward with the curriculum and in terms of their implementing the new AFN curriculum. I think the main sort of my main findings so far, um, kind of how opportunistic the role is. I thought potentially it could be more defined than it is but actually um i think like each medical school the individual has quite like a an individual take on it and has limitations in terms of how formalized their role is Mm -hmm. and with the form like formalizing role gives a greater like dedicated time they're able to allocate um whereas a lot of the sort of individuals you identify as nutrition leads in some of the medical schools much more of an individual interest and they've sort of taken it on themselves to look at the curriculum but don't necessarily have the time to be able to fully sort of implement this interest also like the importance of having this individual having formal nutrition education that was pretty like the general consensus was that it's a very important fact um just because of like looking at especially like nutrition epidemiology and sort of just the whole like kind of like confusion around some nutritional aspects Mm -hmm. and understanding that it is wider than it's not just like clinical nutrition it 
disperses into sort of the food environment, the public health aspects, you've got the diet, like more coming from the dietetics point of view. You're just given how the breadth of it, the importance of having formal nutrition education rather than potentially like a few like a couple of the doctors I spoke to um, who worked in the clinical environment realised once, like, they undertook an MSc and um, how, like, the breadth that they weren't aware of, they realised that they had quite a biased view in a sense and they're really grateful for, like, undertaking further nutrition education mm. and found that was important in them being able to advocate it. Cool. Um, also, like, looking at nutrition as a vehicle for like multi-professional working because I spoke to sort of nutritionists, dietitians, doctors um, and actually like that's like multi-professional working is something that's talked about so much in medical school but not necessarily always fully seen on placement mm-hmm. or placed into our teaching and how nutrition actually provides a really good vehicle to be able to sort of identify this and highlight this to students especially because if nutrition in the clinical environment is one of the specialties I mean that I noticed when I was a medical student and went on a nutrition wardroom that it is so multi-professional like mm. you have you know, one of the doctors that I couldn't work without like the pharmacist specialist nurses dietitians and so I thought that was kind of like an interesting perspective on it in the sense it could be like yeah highlighting two things that potentially aren't highlighted enough in the curriculum um, and also kind of still confusion over where like the place for nutrition is in the curriculum mm. partly because of um like the breadth of the subjects you can have there's so many different avenues you could tackle nutrition from um and which is sort of which is the most useful i suppose for students and the most important um so i suppose that was kind of another challenge that there's only so there is only so much we have already a really packed curriculum mm. and what are the main focus points um, and potentially the points that are the easiest to assess in medical students and the, the points that they'll be most receptive to um, because a few of my participants still kind of identified it's like slight resistance when they have implemented new nutrition teaching like resistance from the students and like difficulty sort of because it doesn't fit the traditional yeah. medical model and um, just like students still like not sure how to grasp some of the content which I thought was Mm. interesting as well. So tell us a bit about your participants and the breadth of them and how you went on to select them and find them. Um, so a few of them were kind of, I've like been to a couple of the like niche tank conferences and had, have spoken there. So they were sort of easier to identify. Um, but a lot of my participants did come from general, had to sort of, I emailed every medical school um, and like a lot of them did come from general admin emails. So you have like, it, the response obviously is quite varied when you have to send it to more generic emails. Um, but the ones who responded, I had 13 participants in the end, were all very like receptive mm. and supportive of the idea of this research. Um, and some were more sort of wanted to get involved in the area, were interested in the area, but hadn't necessarily been like fully formalised within their medical school as nutrition lead, but kind of wanted to uh, put their point of view across. But it was a real mix in terms of there was... Um, uh, a few doctors, a few nutritionists, and a few dietitians. Um, so they were like the three professions that mm-hmm. came out with the doctors 
mainly focusing, mainly specialising in gastro, but not exclusively. Um, so, yeah, they and they were a mix of come the nutritionists coming from like a the research background with a mix of teaching time mm. and dietitians still having like clinical work that some are fully based within medical faculty and the doctors again splitting their time between clinical work and the university um so it was very much no one had the sole role it was very much like a it was a role added onto a already a list of like quite a few roles they all mm. they'll have everyone do it and like very positive um about finding out more about kind of this quite small but like growing nutrition network Absolutely. And were some of the doctors in primary care as well? Um, yeah, there was a couple in primary care. Amazing. I think it was a couple in primary care and three in hospital. And so I know, for instance, the two that you're talking about who spoke at the Nutritank conference, um, Elaine McKinninch, who was on season one of the podcast and someone we work very closely with, and um Dwayne Meller at Aston Medical School so Elaine's at uh, Brighton and Sussex for our listeners so am I right in saying that they are actually dietitians who are part of the medical school faculty and there is their sole role besides their clinical work so their sole role within the medical school is that to be the nutrition lead or do they still have more responsibilities um so Elaine was is employed as a dietitian um focusing on nutrition with uh, education like she still has holds a clinical role um but the majority of her time is focusing on the the nutrition within the curriculum mm. a organizing teaching sessions sort of reviewing where it sits in the curriculum um but the other participant he was employed as um a physio like teaching within physiology right. as a lecturer but because of his background his dietetic background and um, then that led him to sort of i mean his medical school only in the earlier stages and um, they haven't they're quite a new medical school but led yes. him to look at where nutrition can be implemented in the curriculum and highlighting it in the earlier years but that was more because of his background he it's like kind of like the opportunistic role mm-hmm. mainly because of the nutrition background and um, they go he like went on to take on the role of like implementing nutrition mm-hmm. and is there an element of frustration i might just be projecting from <laughs> nutrient tank's perspective that within the uk system each medical school is autonomous and they pick what goes into their curriculum and how it is integrated there is no one standardized approach despite of course the afn creating this new updated curriculum it's still um you know the way it's going to work is each medical school is still at the liberty to choose you know what they select from it and how they implement it so when it comes to finding these nutrition leads is there an element of frustration that, you know, it's not standardised, you're finding complete different um, methods of practice at each medical school, whether it is a nutritionist in charge, a dietitian or doctor, or do you think it adds some sort of positive that a standardised approach hasn't been taken and there are different ways of getting nutrition in the curriculum through different disciplinaries? I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I know, sure. Um, so that was sort of one of the questions that I did ask in my interviews, looking at around the nutrition standards that are in place and whether um, people would be 
supportive on them being more prescriptive and being like this is what you need to achieve within each medical school so it's quite laid out and there was in terms of like having clarity and transparency in what is taught in nutrition education people were quite supportive of that idea but um overall i say people overall yeah, participants were like they kind of liked that they could have a unique take on it i know mm-hmm. one of the universities um just kind of more like historically what the research they've been interested is like the, the developmental of orange origins of health and disease the dohad hypothesis um within the university so kind of the participants said they would expect that um that to be quite heavily emphasized within the nutrition education and medical students because that's something that their university sort of is widely recognized and I know another university is like, we want to take an individual take on it. And um, like, it's our university, like we will do it a bit differently. So overall, people weren't as supportive as having very prescriptive outcomes. Right. And we're more supportive of being able to take a little bit more of a, an individual take and what's feasible within the medical schools, because obviously the medical schools will have different structured curriculums. Yeah. And only that like the individuals within the internal medical school are able to identify what would be appropriate and what is what you are able to implement um so yeah that was my only surprise i thought maybe it would be useful to have nutrition standards and although it was useful and it would be useful to refer to there was still quite a lot of support for medical schools having a more individual take sure so despite that do you think that the participants you've spoken to are still keen to make it part of assessment because we know medical students are very keen for the assessment drives learning kind of um you know is this going to be in the exam type aspect so are these participants still wanting to push nutrition into mcq questions or uh, practical things like oskis because okay. obviously it will vary massively if it isn't prescriptive so is there a way of making it blended from you know these are the learning outcomes and then if you've got special research expertise and historical kind of people in your medical school who have been kind of trailblazing nutrition research then go for it do your own individualized thing uh-huh. yeah so everyone in terms of how you can promote nutrition more within the curriculum everyone was very supportive in terms of like nutrition like assessment does drive content at the end of the day and the medical students as well in terms of their interest will naturally become more interested if they find it is something that would be assessed there was a bit of in terms of like what would be appropriate for assessment because a few participants mentioned that MCQs for nutrition are not necessarily the most effective way to examine because it is quite like, um, yeah, it's not like a one answer question. It's a bit of an art. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a personalised question almost and you need that level of like critical thinking, um, which can necessarily be assessed. And I know that everyone, a lot of participants were quite um, thought in terms of nutritional assessment being removed from the most recent GMC outcomes Mm. that was quite like a confusing concept for a few who weren't aware that was a confusing concept and sort of going away from the direction you you hope it'd be going can you just tell our listeners a little bit about that incident because we've not touched upon it in the podcast yet yeah so the the general medical council um provides sort of objectives for 
when upon graduation, things a medical student should be competent within. And in the most recent um, GMT outcomes, which I think was released in 2018, um, the nutritional assessment, which had previously been part of the clinical skills, um, had been removed. So given, I think, the, the ones before that were 2015, 2016, and the 20- from a medical student um, and a lot of participants felt that was yeah not not the way they'd hope it would go and a really like nutrition assessment is a really important and almost like yeah really important skill for medical students to be able to carry out absolutely and so in terms of the gmc where does it come into this work um so in terms of the afn curriculum that will be released there's obviously everyone's hoping that it will be endorsed by the GMC and um, but obviously because the GMC is the outcomes that the medical schools have to comply with and then this AFN curriculum is um, a curriculum which supports nutrition with in undergraduate curriculum but isn't compulsory at all and obviously there are quite a lot of different bodies for different specialties or subspecialties creating these curriculums um, that they hope to implement. So there's quite a lot of competition within that field. But at the end of the day, like a, that was kind of one of the limitations in the sense that medical schools, their main interest lies with the, the GMC outcomes because that's yes. something they have to comply yes. with. And if they don't comply with, they, like that's not satisfactory. Mm. So in terms of if you want something to be fully implemented uh, across every single medical school, then you would have to look towards... Um, the nutrition outcomes, the GMC outcomes, and what holds what nutrition is within them. Mm-hmm. There are there are sectors within, um, you know, I can't remember at the very beginning of the document. Nutrition is mentioned, like nutrition is mentioned throughout, but in terms of clinical skills, mm. um, there is none. And also in terms of how you translate that Absolutely. into. each individual medical school can translate the nutrition outcomes in quite a different quite an individual way or it could be quite sparse from the way it's laid out and the outcomes Mm. and especially within consultation skills you know that's such a key skill for a medical student and graduate to learn on how to actually communicate nutrition to the patients sat in front of them the real kind of clinical application but you know we've got to keep fighting the fight and um do you think there are ways of incentivizing medical schools to take on more nutrition education even when it's not compulsory by the gmc i think um so a few participants were quite supportive of like the student voice within um and then the power of that in terms of being able to implement more nutrition in it and for some participants um, it was highlighted by like student interest and made them sort of look at the nutrition in their curriculum and question it and um, also talked about um with AFN obviously this was more of a, a concept I'm not necessarily sure how how it could be implemented but AFN are the accrediting body for nutritionists mm. and they accredit courses all across the UK to certify that they're, you know, you you come out as an ANUTR um, and it's accredited by the AFN. Whether the AFN, if medical schools were complying with 
a certain number of the curriculum points could receive like some like a form of a nutrition badge um sort of like a form of accreditation to mm. say they are they are um carrying that out whether that could be and that would incentivize um so that was something that kind of came out of the interviews a few people mentioned that idea yeah um so i think it's difficult i think you a lot of people refer to like having carrots and sticks and that like you kind of want to do it in terms of you have to be quite flexible with increasing nutrition in the curriculum you have to be able to find opportunities which if a lot of the nutrition needs have been very successful in doing um and but whether to be able to get that universal because obviously i only spoke to 13 participants and i didn't get a lot of responses from universities and I don't know whether that's because they don't have someone who's clearly identifiable as taking hold of nutrition within the curriculum so if you're getting it more on a universal across the UK medical schools you potentially need a few more sort of sticks and and stipulations to be able to ensure that nutrition is adequate across every single medical school not just the medical schools where you have an individual who's particularly interested and particularly passionate about the subject and sees the importance absolutely because you know i think those people are more of the kind of you know rare pearls whereas we have to try and incentivize people who will actually take on the role of a nutrition lead when they don't have as much passion as the ones that have done it off their own back and have shown initiative like someone like Elaine McKinninch um, and her work with Dr Kathy Martin in the Brighton and Sussex Medical Faculty. So I think it's really important that that is also one of the kind of future aims that we do with nutrition education work that we try and find a way to incentivise those that don't already have a prior interest in it. Um, and it is remarkable to see the work that people are doing across the country and the individual take they're taking on it. So you've got, you know, UCL with um, uh, Sophie, Dr. Sophie Park, who's in primary care and has got culinary medicine in. So that was the method she wanted to bring nutrition education in. And then you've got Imperial who um, have brought in a whole kind of nutrition lifestyle medicine module to their cohort of students so there's bits and bobs happening everywhere but like you say it's so individualized and I think there definitely needs to be a way to figure out how it can be assessed otherwise what you know what can we measure really we need to be able to really measure that doctors of kind of our generation and the generations below us are making a difference to the patients in front of them because they have that extra tool in their toolkit yeah, no, definitely. I think when it came out, sort of the difficulties within the clinical reinforcement in the later clinical years, and just like the importance of medical students having the practical skills and the confidence yeah. in just having conversations surrounding food and nutrition, which is the hardest thing to sort of well it's not something that's being assessed currently because obviously it's not within the gmc outcomes and it's a harder thing to teach in a sense and it's very reliant on your experiences within the clinical environment and um, and whether you have that highlighted to you which i think the nutrition leads felt they had a lot less control over in the later years mm-hmm. and so with your project i know it's in it's very early stages and you're you know going to begin writing up soon but what do you think your project is going to do to help kind of push this argument for more nutrition education and how it can actually be implemented within the medical arena? Um, so I think I was quite aware when I was sort of like looking through literature and I was trying to decide on my topic um, 
there, there is a lot of literature surrounding the, the kind of the inadequacies of nutrition within the curriculum and the limitations and barriers to implementing. But because nutrition leads are found to be supportive of nutrition within the medical curriculum, I was kind of hoping this piece would be kind of like a, potentially like a bridge to how you can actually move forward um, and resolve a few of the issues around the curriculum and sort of a more, yeah, I suppose it's like the bridge there is an issue but there's clearly these individuals who are trying to resolve and um, improve the nutrition within them and how potentially this network could kind of work together and share successes share limitations to overall and just be able to provide a bit more transparency of nutrition nutrition education within for medical students because Mm. I think like a few of my participants like at the end of the day we're trying to teach everyone's going to be qualify as a doctor and they're the doctors of the future so it would make more sense for there to be a bit more transparency because everyone sort of has the same collective aim even if each medical school is going about it from a different angle so maybe just a little bit more sort of highlighting the nutrition network everyone that I spoke to was interested in linking up um, with each other if they weren't already aware of their work and hopefully to find a bit more about sort of the successes and how they could go forward and um, especially if everyone's taking a different take on it put them together and that's quite a breadth of nutrition that is being um taught and that could be discussed between so i think trying to bridge that we found out the issue and hopefully like these individuals could be part of the way to sort of improving uh, the nutrition within the medical education I think that's extraordinary that not only that you've conducted the research, but you've actually kind of created an everlasting network for people to engage with each other, almost a working group to really drive this forward. I think that's a really, really great outcome of your work and look very forward to working with you on that within the NutriTank networks. And so just final question, if you had more time and resources, where would you like to see your research go? What do you think the limitations are? I think it'd be interesting. I think from, this is just my perceptions, but nutrition had been, is easier to implement when it's a theme throughout the five years in terms of maybe the medical school has like a spiral curriculum and it's something that sort of keeps being reinforced over the years and also if there's a theme then you can attach a lead to a theme um so a few medical schools there was a nutrition theme so that has to have a lead which i think is it provides like time and it provides resources and it sort of provides a person that will be in charge of that part of the curriculum whereas obviously not all curriculums are structured in that that way and um, and people quite like said it shouldn't really be a nutrition block it should be integrated so it'd be interesting to look at sort of the structure like how maybe the structures of medical schools limit or support implementing greater nutrition and potentially maybe a lot of people were a bit unsure if the course was more problem-based learning mm. how actually when it's coming from a student more of a student self-taught basis how you can implement nutrition within um those situations so i think potentially looking a little bit more about the structures of each medical school just to understand sort of the nuances in increasing nutrition sure and finally where can people find you to get in touch with you and keep up with your work um <laughs> i actually don't know <laughs> i suppose 
Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty much on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm pretty much on all of them. I don't really have an Insta, unfortunately. No, no, of course. That's fine. But just like an email or anything. Oh, um, yeah. Maybe from my from from my work and um, Alice dot scott one at student.lshtm.ac.uk that's probably the best brilliant well thanks so much alice that's a wrap thank you to all the wonderfully inspiring medical students who took part in this episode of the podcast and for sharing their brilliant research in the field of nutrition in medical education so if you want to hear more and want to stay tuned Tune in for part two of this episode where we speak to more medical students and they talk about their brilliant nutrition education research. Wow, another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.